It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. The U.S. military has always prided itself on being the most powerful military on the face of the Earth, with GIs better than anyone else's. American fighting. Fighting for their country while half a world away from it. Fighting for their country, and for more than their country. But in 2019, the American war machine doesn't just need Rambos to jump out of helicopters. It needs hackers. And hackers aren't exactly always in the same type of talent pool. And in 2018, born out of the offices of the NSA, the U.S. military officially inaugurated Cyber Command as its official internet warrior force. Yes, hacker soldiers. On this week's Cyber, we've got Dave Weinstein, a former member of the U.S. Cyber Command and the now CSO of cybersecurity firm Clarity, to give us an inside scoop on how this new American cyber army functions. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So Dave, thanks for coming down to Vice. Thanks for having me. In the studios to talk about Cyber Command. Great to be in Brooklyn. <laughs> You're a Jersey boy. I'm a Jersey boy. So I'm, I'm sorry, to raised. Br- sorry to bring you, you know, to the... Across the river, it's, it's Across okay. the river. We're all happy to, to come on this side of the river from time to time. All good. So, look, Cyber Command, I think... A lot of people, when they think about the U.S. military and hackers and cyber soldiers, so to speak, we don't really understand what it is. So uh, can you break it down for me? You're somebody who has experience. You were in Cyber Command. Yeah. What is it? It's a great question. <laughs> so th- the best way to think about Cyber Command is in the context of this new domain of warfare to use DOD parlance, uh, Pentagon parlance, right? Traditionally... The U.S. military operates at sea and air on land and in space, arguably. Um, cyberspace is this fifth or sixth domain, depending on how uh, you, you count it. And uh, it is staffed with people that perform what all qualify as traditional military functions, planning, operations, policy, but applied to cyberspace. So on paper, that's really clean. Right? It's like, okay, we have a new domain. It's called cyberspace. Take everything we do with ground operations, with naval operations, and apply it to this non-kinetic realm. The newest U.S. military command is responsible not for a piece of land or air, but cyberspace. In practice, it's not that clean, right? <laughs> like anything to do with the Pentagon, frankly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, take that and like multiply it to the nth degree. Um, And the reason it's not clean, generally speaking, is because uh, cyberspace is full of ambiguity, right? There is this attribution problem where it's very hard to understand who's hitting you. Who's attacking you. Right? And vice versa, it's really really hard to plan operations um, in cyberspace because you're dealing with uh, a lot of of ambiguity, right? Right. But generally speaking, that's what Cyber Command does. It's staffed with civilians, with military officers. When I joined, um, I got involved with Cyber Command in late 2009, early 2010. Uh, and it had just stood up. It was, um, it had reached full operational capability, or FOC, um, in 2009. 
And it was staffed by a bunch of folks who came to Cyber Command from different domains of warfare. So we had pilots, we had tank operators, um, we had signals, intelligence officers. So NSA-type people. NSA-types, um, but a really diverse, heterogeneous um, group of folks. So, and you were just like, you're all here from different walks of military life, mm-hmm. and it was just sort of like, hack at it. Yeah. It looks and sounds like every other stateside military base, far from the front lines around the globe. But Fort Meade, Maryland, home base of the National Security Agency and U.S. Cyber Command, the military's newest combatant command, is fighting a war every day. So mm-hmm. you have um, you know, your hardcore technologists, you have DevOps people, all sorts of uh, professionals from from all sorts of backgrounds. Uh, Of course, united around one mission, which was evolving at the time. Uh, Generally speaking, Cyber Command plans and executes both defensive and offensive operations in cyberspace, right? So uh, we're all trying to figure that out. We're all trying to speak the same language, um, not just, you know, in terms of, of translating bits and bytes to nouns, adjectives, and verbs, but also institutionally, right? Um, The Air Force does targeting in a different way than the Army does targeting, right? So we had to kind of reconcile all these these differences across the uh, the different services. It was pretty interesting. Because it's not as simple as just being, I mean, it's obviously I'm, I'm simplifying this, but if you're in the Air Force and you have a target in, say, Iraq, and you need to bomb it, it's, it's a little more clear as to what that looks like and unfolds right. as. Right. Whereas if you're looking at cyberspace, that could be a lot of things. You could DDoS something, you could right. actually take out critical infrastructure. Right. And also, what are the legal parameters around all this? Yeah. So um, the, the staff judge advocate... Um, or, or the lawyers in the rooms were, were uh, omnipresent during my time at, at Cyber Command and for good reason. And, and one of the primary reasons, to your point, and dealing with the ambiguity, is that it's really hard to assess the consequences or the collateral effects of a cyber operation. So let's, let's talk physical and then virtual for a second. On the physical side, if you drop a bomb on a warehouse... Um, based on the type of bomb, based on the size of the warehouse, based on a number of other environmental conditions, you can come up with a really high confidence assessment of what the impact of that ordinance will be and any potential for collateral effects, whether they be measured uh, in geopolitical terms, in, um, in human life terms, what have you. In cyberspace, that's really murky, right? Um, and, and you just have to look at historical events of... Uh, of of cyber attacks, you know, for example, um, NotPetya or WannaCry, which just expanded well beyond their intended uh, effects, right? Collateral damage. So, uh, needless which is to, to say, say which is ahead. to say, there was WannaCry spread from the target might have been you know some UK critical infrastructure, but it spread all over the world, and people were getting hit with with ransomware that they never, the North Korean government never intended on doing. <laughs> Arguably, yeah. Now, maybe they just didn't care. Maybe they knew that that was going to propagate like wildfire and they didn't care. Right, so it's kind of like the difference between, you know, you bomb something, there could be civilian casualties, there could be a geopolitical fallout you don't, you, you don't foresee, you could, you know, really piss off another country. Right. But you can kind of foresee it. 
uh, a cyber attack is more like you bomb something and it can kind of continue bombing it right. and things you didn't even intend on doing. Right. So you have to account for that unknown, like that known unknown, if you will. Um, and it's not just about the the operational collateral effects, right? So like the propagation of the payload beyond its intended target. Um, it also has to do um, with the potential burning of that particular tool. So the the shelf life for um, for cyber weapons is extremely short. Right? It's basically a one shot. Basically one a one shot, shot deal. <laughs> um, maybe if you're lucky, um, you can get two or three. And that's because most of these things also have to do with zero day exploits. And when you use it and waste it, then your adversary or whoever you're intending to target will find out about it and patch. Right. So um, I- exactly. And, and there's they're oftentimes paired specifically for a target, right? So they're, they're oftentimes target-specific. Unlike a bomb that you could drop on, on this warehouse or that warehouse, uh, typically payloads only work against you know, this version of, of an OS or, or, or uh, a, a router with this firmware version. Right. They've um, been using Hellfire missiles now for, like, decades. Exactly. So, so they are very much not target agnostic, um, generally speaking. Um, but but those are some of the things that, uh, and I was a planner. My my official title was computer network operations planner. Those were some of the things that we thought through, um, and and helped quite frankly inform um, policy making at the at a very early stage in the game when we were just trying to figure out okay if we're gonna if we're gonna compete in this space if we're gonna try to um, exercise freedom of maneuver and gain superiority in this new domain over our adver- adversaries. What tools are we going to need at our advantage, uh, at our disposal, I should say, and and what are kind of the boundaries going to be the the, the rules of the road? So those were some of the issues we were working through. You know, one thing I always hear from people and they ask, they're like, you know, why aren't we just hacking things and destroying them instead of going to war? And I guess the thing I always say is, the way that hacking is used by military strategists is it's a tool in the toolkit. If it if it's functional and useful for that one moment, yeah. then they'll use it. Because if you know, I mean, I know military people, you do too. They'll use whatever whatever simplistic way of getting to their right. intended goal with as le- least amount of damage as possible. Right. So I think that's the right way to look at it. And, and oftentimes I think um, our expectations, I'm, I'm using the, the general hour, um, are are a little too high with respect to the utility of, of cyber operations or cyber weapons, whatever you want to uh, call them. By the way, I think we, we use the term cyber attack a little too cavalier, cavalierly, and, and maybe that's what props up some of our expectations. Um, but oftentimes, cyber operations are most effective when used in a very tailored, targeted fashion. Uh, and in my opinion, they are, they are best used in concert with other... Uh, other types of kinetic operations, right? So I often say it's it's really not useful um, to think about uh, fighting cyber with cyber. Like they hit us, we hit them. Um, I, I prefer to to think about it in the context of how how we can harmonize instruments of national power, specifically force projection capabilities across sea, air, land, space, and cyberspace. And in that respect, cyberspace is an invaluable enabler of other kinetic operations. Well, one thing that it, it can be, 
and, it, and it's been it's been this way in the past, at least as the reporting will have us know. Something like Stuxnet, for example. Mm-hmm. This was a an intended uh, an intended cyber weapon used, and it was used on the Iranian nuclear program, and it slowed down and destroyed a reactor and was able to sort of avoid this bombing because the, uh, as the story goes, the Israelis really wanted to bomb Natanz or, or part of the Iranian system. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. government said, no, 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 we've got this other, we've got this other thing right. we can use that will avoid kinetic operations. Did you see stuff like that in, in, the, in the time that you were? No, and, and of course I don't, um, you know, know anything about Stuxnet or, or um, you know, who it's attributed to or anything like that, other than what I've read um, publicly, which is that it seems to have been an extremely effective cyber weapon, extremely effective payload, uh, to your point, because it achieved a political objective. right? And I think this is sometimes lost on the conversation. At the end of the day, we project force in order to achieve political objectives. In this case, the political objective, if in fact it was used for this purpose, uh, was very clear, not necessarily to prevent Iran from getting the bomb, but at least to to delay the process to allow for other measures to to step in. I mean, did we buy any time? I think. Well, I think 2010 was a bad year for Iran, part largely because of Stuxnet. There were other things going on too, but but Stuxnet, um, I think, hurt him for maybe up to a year, delayed just him. a year. Yeah, and that, and that's one of the downsides. Um, it's very hard to make a um, computer software save the day. You could argue whether that was, you know, a, an effective tactic or, or not. But nevertheless, that's, um, I think, a good way to think about um, how cyber force can be effectively deployed. But there are uh, other sides to that equation, right? And, and when, you, um, when you consider the, the current kind of geopolitical landscape and the different actors at the nation-state level with significant capabilities in this domain, the United States probably has the most to lose um, from a defensive posture, right? We, we More bandwidth runs through the United States than any other country. We're, we're more economically dependent on our, on our digital infrastructure than any other country in the world. Uh, arguably, we kind of live in a glass house. Um, so if we're going to use these capabilities, especially um, in a short-of-war scenario, um, you know, we better we better pick and choose carefully because there will be there will be consequences. The question is, will uh, will the benefits outweigh the cost? So when when you're at Cyber Command and you're planning for this stuff, because you know if you look at if you look at the the conventional military, uh, and although Cyber Command is the conventional military, I would just say the traditional military. Sure, uh, you know they always come up with ideas of how to invade somewhere or contingencies or how to how to attack something or defend something. In order for you know the worst case scenario to unfold, and you're you're not caught flat footed. Right. You look at somewhere like Iran recently. There was some stories about how NSA and Cyber Command were looking at you know taking it out digitally because it had become sort of a problem uh, following following uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. Right. If you're Cyber Command, how what would you do? Like, what does that mean? Does it mean infiltrating critical infrastructure? Does it mean going after certain politicians and their information? Is it, or is it kind of all of the above? So it's got to start with what whatever the political objective is, right? Um, and I think um, we we don't want Cyber Command, and I'm not saying they're doing this, um, but, but we don't want to get in a position where we're just providing tactical operations 
uh, or tactical options, I, I should say, um, to deal with the problem of the day, right? It really needs to be tied uh, to a larger strategy. And um, I, I think the, the, the best tact, therefore, um, is to figure out ways that cyber capabilities can complement um, either existing plans on the book, uh, can augment those plans, um, or can stand alone. But I think those those opportunities are are few and far between. Switching gears a little bit. Yeah. How does it recruit? Like, it's like, you know, I, I know who's... You look at someone who wants to be in the military. There's certain people yeah. that you know that they're... You're going to go to the Special Forces. Yeah. I, I've met all types of hackers, all types of different people that could be good for this space. How do you recruit for it? Yeah, it's, it's probably, in my opinion, um, the biggest crisis that... Um, that the U.S. military faces with respect to, to this new domain is, is attracting and retaining good talent. Our adversaries do their best to keep their plans, capabilities, and identities a secret. At the National Security Agency, we uncover those secrets and keep our own secrets safe. But as the world becomes more and more technologically advanced, this mission becomes more challenging. That is why NSA employs only the most intelligent people in the country. The, the cyber warrior uh, of the future, you know, to use a, you know, a term that's overused, <laughs> is, uh, is, is unlike any other... Cyber Rambo. Warrior. <laughs> that's right. It is unlike any other uh, warrior that the U.S. military has ever employed, right? Totally different makeup, um, totally different mindset, skill set, um, very unique. And, and what it's going to take, in my, in my opinion... Uh, is a bit of a cultural sh- change um, within the NSA, within the DOD writ large, uh, to accept uh, different standards, not lower standards, uh, but generally different standards and incentivize people with the right skill sets uh, to be on board for the long term. Um, and what does that mean? Well, I'm hearing a lot of I'm hearing a lot of beltway jargon here. What does that mean? <laughs> so that means, for example, and I wrote an article about this um, uh, a few years back because I've actually advocated uh, for uh, uh, a cyber force, another branch of the military that's solely dedicated to, to this domain. Um, and, and what it means, for example, um, is you're not making these people uh, you know, run, do PT tests, right? <laughs> because there's no correlation between PT scores... <laughs> And uh, your push-up, your push-up count, and exactly. your ability to like your tap ability, that a keyboard your, real well. Your ability to to plan and execute cyber operations. So that's that's kind of a trivial example, but I think it's telling of some of the cultural well changes that the military is going to have to uh, undergo. Well, there's also something else that I've heard from a lot of hackers who've been like, ah, I kind of wanted to apply to NSA or I wanted yeah. to apply to Cyber Command. Uh, they're like, Yeah, I smoked weed in the last yeah. two years. Sure, that's, I, mean, I that's, can't do it. That's the obvious one. And, and listen. Um, you know, there's there's a number of considerations at play here, but I think um, I think whatever downside, if if there's any, to employing folks who have uh, a, a small history of recreational drug use is offset by by the skills that they can provide. You know, over the course of a, a career with the U.S. military, right? So the challenge here is who they're competing with, right? They're competing with Google, they're competing with Amazon, they're competing with with startups all over the place. Um, so they need to find some competitive advantage. It has always been the mission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if all else if all else fails, 
They've relied on the mission. Come work for the U.S. government. You could do really cool things. Yeah, exactly. you can't do anywhere else for the right reason. But you see that same, uh, that same narrative coming out of a lot of startups these days in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. So they no longer have a, a, a monopoly, if you will, on that narrative. I have heard from other people in this space who've been part of Cyber Command that, you know, one of the, one of the selling points is like the way you attract some guy or, or gal into the special forces. Yeah. Right? Or it's like you want to jump out of an airplane and like, you know, fight the bad guys and do the right thing in a really highly covert scenario yeah. and be elite. Come and do it. And in 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 cyber, there needs to be more of a sale of that, right? Like yeah. do you want to do you want to hack Chinese networks? Right. And look at stuff that no one else will. Yeah. And break things and do it for 4 years then go get a job at yeah. Facebook for a million dollars. It also seems to me that you know part of the people that you would attract nowadays are put off by stuff like that happened with Snowden, that they see the U.S. government as being yeah. sort of this this uh, omnipotent big brother state that's yeah. doing bad things. And the types of people that you want are precisely those types of people. Yeah, I, I think those are two really good points. They, they are, they have, and I think they are kind of playing that card about, you know, specifically the cool things you can do with the U.S. government, right? So they're driving that home. But there's also a level of transparency, I think, that they need to employ um, in order to attract uh, our generation and future generations to a career in public service, uh, especially in the wake of Snowden and, and a few other uh, incidents that that um, that folks from our generations regard as scandals, quite frankly. Um I'm not saying I necessarily regard them as scandals, but generally speaking. So, um, you know, for example, this is a little trivial, but the NSA is now on Instagram, right? It is, but they got a, they've, their Instagram is, oh man. <laughs> Baby steps. Them, them and the CIA, I'm like, Jesus. I mean, they're putting pictures of <laughs> NSA employees on Instagram. That's which crazy. would have been uh, blasphemous well, even no, a couple of years ago. No such agency? Right. Right. So they've kind of accepted their new place in the world, their 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 um, newfound publicity, uh, even though they didn't ask for it. And and I think if they embrace that, they have a chance at really, um, you know, being an attractive place for for folks to work. Because I'm telling you, uh, the work that the men and women of the NSA do is a, a national treasure. I mean, and they'll never fully get credit for it. So if you're looking for a place. Um, to 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 be able to take credit for things, um, you're not going to find it at at Fort Meade. Um, but if you're looking for for really meaningful work, um, then then you will because they have uh, they they are exposed to the tip of the spear literally when it comes to technology um, and and the mission of of cybersecurity. So it's pretty uh, it's a pretty cool place to work. I think they have a lot to work with in terms of uh, ammunition for for recruiting people. They just have to make the decision to to let it go, right? They they just have to go all out. I mean, w- Cyber Command didn't have a a website for until like a year ago, and even now, like it's, it it leaves really, a lot to be desired, right? Yeah. So, um, they need to step it up in that regard. The other area that's really interesting is how we can employ the National Guard um, to kind of bring on like this rotating workforce. Um, between, you know, America's private sector and our military. So, like, you know, maintain a connective tissue between uh, folks who are in the private sector, 
but if need be, you know, we can call on them to, to support missions uh, in cyberspace. Would that represent a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, a, a privacy security threat, though, you think? Like people going in and out and they're much more likely to get things and leak things? No, I mean, as long as they're operating under the appropriate authorities, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a precedent for that already. Um, it's no different than, you know, in my opinion, employing contractors. Um, but uh, sure, does it, does it present security risks? Um, and, and, and an opportunity for more leaking, yeah. Um, but these are, these are risks that, that we're going to have to accept if we want the best people uh, in the organization. Now, uh, we've, enter- we've interviewed Edward Snowden on this, this program before. Uh, tell me, I mean, love him or hate him, I know a lot of government types, it's interesting, it's, he's kind of like Benedict Arnold or something. <laughs> but um, regardless of that, what did the the Snowden leaks do to the morale within sort of these secret communities <laughs> and its ability to recruit? Yeah, incredibly, incredibly damaging to morale. And in fact, his actions continue to to negatively impact the morale of of folks at the agency uh, who have who have dedicated their lives, um, their professional lives, to safeguarding certain. Uh, certain pieces of information in order to preserve uh, the, the integrity of programs that save Americans, right? So um, for, for the folks who were uh, hurt most by this, at least in my experience, um, these are not ideologues. These are not people with um, really strong political persuasions towards one end or, 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 or the other. But these are people who are focused on on the mission of the agency and independent of the political ideological consideration, the actions of, of Edward Snowden were, were extremely damaging to, to those interests. So, you know, I, I think about it through that lens because it, it really just undid the work of a lot of really hard, hardworking and dedicated people. And that hurt morale. Well, one thing I'd say, I mean, I, I think that the, that that is a thing, and I've heard it before, and I I, uh, I believe it's true. Yeah. The one thing I, I I think about as well is that okay, so you're trying to now recruit some of these people that have these reservations about, you know, the intentions of the U.S. government, or or you know, they admire Snowden, but that say they still want public service, but if they see wrongdoing, they want to be able to to, to blow the whistle and to be mm-hmm. able to say this is wrong and go through an internal process to do it. And then at the same time, you have a president who's trying to out a whistleblower in a top secret way right now. And I would think, I mean, I'm not going to be working for any of these places anytime soon, that's for sure. That seems to be the biggest deterrent of all. Like if I want to, if I want to do good and serve my country and also be able to call out wrongdoing, I mean, this is a situation where it's... I would only be able to do that if it was politically feasible for the president. Yeah. So um, my my take on this is is straightforward. I, I think the whistleblower act and the integrity of uh, of that statute will uh, far survive this administration, far outlast this administration. You know, despite the rhetoric, despite the the, the demonization, if you will, of the whistleblower. I have faith in in its ability to withstand, uh, you know, uh, all of kind of this noise. Uh, in some respects, 
in the long run, it will probably strengthen it because there will be an equal and opposite response, in my opinion, to to make sure that no one person can undermine it. I, I think when the acting director of national intelligence testified to the importance of the whistleblower act, as well as the fact that the whistleblower, him or herself, uh, did the right thing by coming forward, um, I think that's more representative of the status quo, not not you know, what the president is saying at, at, at any given moment or time. While disturbing, I, I just don't think it's going to, it's going to have an impact. It might dissuade some people, but they should, uh, in my opinion, they should feel, they should rest assured that, that the statute will, will outlast this administration. Last question. Yeah. 2020 is coming. You were in U.S. Cyber Command. <laughs> Tell me. Are we, should we really be that afraid of Russia? So I'm, I'm not really big on the whole doom and gloom narrative with respect to cyber. I know it, it sells really well. It gets people scared and they all rush to their, uh, you know, their, their, their favorite vendor for, for more licenses. Um, Shots fired. There's, there's, I say that as, as somebody who works for a vendor, right? Um, the uh, the fact of the matter is the the risk is real, the sky's not falling, but the risk is real, and I think what we saw in 2016 is both the capability and the intent of the Russians to to get uh, to get in our business, and I don't think it's going to change in 2020. Well, yeah, I guess I, I saw a headline this morning, and it was sort of Russia's back for 2020. They're already going after Instagram users on on yeah. in America, and I'm just like, they never left. They never left. <laughs> Um, it's the way we're, we're as, as journalists. It's the way we're talking about these stories. Yeah, they, they never le- li- listen. That's that article probably got a lot of clicks, right? But mm-hmm. they they never left. They they aren't likely to leave anytime soon. There is, in my opinion, limited. You know, there's only so much the government can do to solve this problem, right? This really requires, and 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 this is what gives me optimism. Like this really requires, based on heightened awareness among citizens, companies, nonprofits, NGOs, heightened awareness of what's actually going on, right? That, that A, they're doing it, and B, how they're doing it, whether they're employing troll farms or embarking on other disinformation campaigns. And eventually, whether it's this cycle or next cycle, we're, we're going to catch up with their tactics. And I think the worst days will be behind us. I'm, I'm hopeful that Government will do what they can do with respect to locking down, you know, voter registration databases and 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 other infrastructure is directly tied to you know, the election system itself. But they're not going away. What worries me more, uh, quite frankly, is what seems to be a persistent uh, Russian presence in a lot of our our infrastructure. Vital U.S. infrastructure, including the power grid, under cyber threat by Russian government hackers, potentially giving the Kremlin the ability to turn off the lights. The Department of Homeland Security and the FBI detailing a two-year multi-stage effort by Moscow targeting the U.S. energy grid. The, the industrial control systems that basically underlie uh, everything that runs society, not just the electric grid, that gets a lot of attention. Um, but manufacturing facilities, other kind of systems that are natural gas, natural gas, so they're public utilities. They, and, and they're thinking about this very practically. They are holding this infrastructure at risk, not so they can just shut off the lights 
because Putin's having a bad day, but so that in the event of, of escalation, of geopolitical escalation, they could execute their their payloads, right? So, And Cyber Command's doing the same thing, too, we have to think, that they're also inside Russian systems. There was a story recently in New York Times saying as much that, you know, you have Cyber Command and NSA inside some of these, these Russian electrical grids, not necessarily to actually, like, put the lights out now, but, like you said, stuff gets ratcheted up, gets a little crazier, suddenly then you're going to maybe turn the lights out in St. Petersburg. Yeah, I saw the Times article... Uh, I think what we have going on, you know, notwithstanding the veracity of the reporting, I, I was actually quoting the article, independent of, of of the actual reporting. But what what I think is going on at the international level is basically a virtual land grab. Like everyone's trying to gain a foothold in as many pl- strategic places as possible, in the same way that nations do in the physical world. Right? They 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 have bases. Uh, they have different kind of strategic footholds across uh, across the globe so that they can project power if and when necessary. I think we see a similar phenomenon taking place in, in cyberspace, but it's happening in a much more quieter fashion, much more uh, anonymous fashion. Uh, so it's difficult to gauge, you know, who's winning. Well, that sounds like it could only lead to good things. <laughs> I, at the end of the day, I am, uh, I'm optimistic about the way ahead. <laughs> Well, thank you for being here, Dave. Thanks for having me, Thanks for coming to uh, Brooklyn. My pleasure. (laughs) Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right. Jason, welcome back. And on the other side of the mic, finally, because uh, or the other mic, because you stole the show from me last week. Yeah, I'm back in my uh, my submissive chair over here. Good. The uh, the small chair. Yeah, it is. This is a little boy chair. Yeah, I'm on the big boy chair. Okay. Well, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? <laughs> I'm sitting here insulting you, and let's let's talk about your oh, scoop. We're, star- we're, st- we're starting with my story. We're starting with we're your starting scoop. Yeah, your uh, scoop. Yeah. So the Washington Post just hired uh, Juliet Kayem, who uh, is a teacher at Harvard University. She's a former member of the Obama administration's Department of Homeland Security. And notably, she just helped NSO group uh, create some human rights guidelines, which is really extremely notable considering that just a year ago, Jamal Khashoggi, who is a Washington Post columnist before Juliet was, was murdered by the Saudi Arabian government, allegedly with the help of NSO group. Yeah, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a contradiction, I gotta say. Yeah. So uh, for people who don't know, uh, basically what happened or what what is going on here is that or what what's alleged to have happened with the NSO group, right? Well, so what's happening here with the Washington Post is that they are they've hired someone who works for consults for NSO group, which is a spyware company that is alleged to have helped the Saudi Arabian government surveil Jamal Khashoggi a year ago 
in the days leading up to him being killed and dismembered in a Turkish consulate, a Saudi Arabian consulate in Turkey. Yeah, and and just to add, it was a uh, horrific uh, premeditated assassination where he was dismembered, beheaded, and his all the while his fiance waited outside. It was just a disgusting story. So I think, and the Washington Post has actually also been very serious and very on top of reporting uh, around Khashoggi's murder and has been very vocal. And, and to be to be fair. In a, in a good, a positive way. So this is sort of, yeah. What, like, what's what? crazy is that Khashoggi's own editor a year ago told the Committee to Protect Journalists, quote, people are losing their lives over surveillance. That's how you try to go after ideas. It's through surveillance. And they were talking specifically about Saudi Arabian surveillance with NSO Group. Yeah, it's not a very good look. And uh, it's re- not a good reg- look. So regardless of whether NSO Group had any role whatsoever in Khashoggi's death, which it denies that and disputes that it has, it has been confirmed that they work with authoritarian governments, including Saudi Arabia, all the time to surveil journalists and activists. Uh, you know, this group, Citizen Lab, which we've had on the show before, has turned up this sort of evidence all the time. Uh, some journalists in Mexico, some activists in Morocco, that sort of thing. So this is not a good company regardless. And this is, the Washington Post has now hired someone who consulted with them to uh, create basically like a human rights guidelines for them, which seems like it'd be a step in the right direction. Like the purpose of the of these guidelines were to prevent uh things like this from happening, like prevent authoritarian governments from using NSO spyware, which is called Pegasus, to surveil activists and journalists, etc. However, the United Nations just four days ago wrote an eight-page letter to NSO groups saying that its guidelines were bullshit, that the guidelines that this woman worked on were really bad and had a lack of transparency and all that sort of thing. So, it's just like one of those things where you can hire literally anyone in the entire world and you choose to hire someone who is associated with a company that uh, many, many people, including like the United Nations, thinks helped get your guy murdered a year ago. I think we should leave it at that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty well put. Um, on the bandwagon of uh, talking about uh, legacy media... Another one of your stories with Lorenzo last week, which is, uh, you know, for journalists, we 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 uh, look at this quite often, but uh, kind of calling out the New York Times for never hyperlinking any of past stories done by other outlets that they then do stories on. Yeah, I wanna. I don't want to riff on this too much because I feel like we could go down a very dark path. But uh, basically, we ran an article last week after... Uh, the New York Times wrote an article about Kickstarter unionizing, which didn't mention or link to a Slate article written by April Glazer, who uh, sort of had like the entire scoop that the New York Times had before the New York Times had it. And the New York Times didn't link to it or mention it or show that it had read her article in any way, shape or form. And that's notable because this sort of thing happens all the time with the New York Times where they don't give credit, they don't link back to, uh, you know, journalists who have previously covered ground that they are also covering. And this is not to say that the New York Times doesn't add anything or isn't doing a good job, but it's not acknowledging the fact that 
other journalists have sort of covered the same topics that they are covering. Or have covered them first. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, this is super notable because the New York Times drives a ton of the national conversation. It's for like local newspapers or very small outlets. It's a huge deal when one of their scoops becomes a topic of national conversation. And, you, you know, like local and small media is dying all the time. And, you know, to have a story sort of taken by the New York Times and not link back to that earlier reporting is disingenuous. It paints a weird picture of the truth that isn't real to its readers. And we know that this is a huge problem because the New York Times' own standards editor sent a memo to its newsroom earlier this year, soon after uh, this happened to a motherboard story, uh, saying like, we should link all the time, link early, link often, give credit, uh, you know. I know, and it's still not happening. And it's still not happening. And so I think I just kind of want to leave it at that. Uh, the article went up last week. Uh, it's called, at the Times, A Hesitance to Hyperlink, which is, I thought, a clever headline because it's sort of New York Times style. I, I liked it, yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, I could rant on this for a long time and it would not be fruitful. It would just be Okay, let's sad. cut it there. Let's yeah. cut it <laughs> Uh, Tom DeLonge's UFO research group got a contract with the U.S. Army? Yeah, it's crazy. It's completely <laughs> like, crazy. What? It's like, so earlier this year... By the way, this Tom DeLonge of UFO notoriety, uh, lesser known for his Blink-182 days, um, <laughs> not a joke. This is real. This is the thing. This it's is like, a real so, thing. So earlier this year, I was like, huh, like... There's not that many people covering UFOs. There was this whole like raid Area 51 Facebook meme. And we had a guy named MJ Banyas reach out to me uh, who wrote a book about UFO culture. And I was like, yeah, this is interesting. Like not that many people cover UFOs seriously. Like it's a lot of conspiracy type stuff. There's not like a lot of serious journalism or there is, but like you don't know where to find it because it's it's sort of mixed in with like weird conspiracy stuff. And so I was like, yeah, let's like write a little bit more about UFOs. And so we wrote like one article about Tom DeLonge and his group called To The Stars Academy. And it was like, okay, like we'll probably move on from that because how often can this possibly be relevant? And like every week there's been a new Tom DeLonge UFO story where it's like, they're just getting more and more like legit as <laughs> also, also, time goes just on. Like, it's just like as time goes on, it's like more and more I'm puzzled how this isn't the, the international conversation. Yeah, so like the, the big like huge... aliens could come down into Times Square. What was the thing that Trump said one time when he's on when he's on uh, uh, the campaign trial? He could like shoot someone and no one would. Aliens could come to Times Square and no one would give no one a would flying care. fuck. Yeah, so I mean, the biggest story, like the absolute biggest story is that earlier, like a month ago, the Navy acknowledged that uh, the videos released by To The Stars Academy, which is, to remind everyone, Tom DeLong, Blink-182 Singer's UFO research organization, the UFO videos released by his group were real and they didn't know what they were. And this was like a big story for not even five seconds. Like it wasn't a big story. Like no one paid attention to it. Uh, it was a big story for Motherboard for like a couple hours, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't on CNN. It wasn't on all these other, it wasn't national news from what I can tell. No. And so, and now even, like- Even when the, that New York Times article came out in, um, in, in 2017, 
which was insane. It was an insane article. It was like a, a there's a hidden top secret UFO finding unit within like the Pentagon, and there was like alien alloys found. Yes, yeah, so like with a black budget, like, secretly yeah. funded by con- and it was Congress. A, an asterisk. Yeah, so this new deal with the Army, it's not a government contract per se. Like, the Army isn't paying uh, Tom DeLonge anything here, but what they are doing is saying that these alien alloys, these fucking metals that apparently no one knows what they are... I don't like that. ...are being studied in, like, U.S. government labs to determine what they are. They're calling them metamaterials. I don't They're also, like, like looking into active camouflage, which is, like, stealthing technology... Uh, like beam propulsion, so like uh, weird what? types of propulsion. Why it's so? W- w- the other thing I was gonna say is for this this story is like, why is the U.S. Army contracting Tom DeLong for things they already know? That's <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so the guy who's working on this uh, on Tom DeLong's side, his name is Luis Elizondo, and he is the guy who worked in the Pentagon on that uh, sort of like UFO black budget secret thing and now he works for tom delong so i assume that he like helped sort of broker this but it's like this is it's crazy it's really crazy and like like, i i I, i'm starting i'm like i watched signs last week yeah just because i was just getting into that alien life man i wanted i was wanting to know more so ufo people keep showing up on my twitter mentions and just keep saying the disclosure is imminent And the disclosure is this, like, much-prophesied event where the U.S. government just says aliens are real and they live among us and we're coming clean about everything. And, like... Yeah, I don't even... It's probably not imminent, but it's, like, you can't rule it out. You can't rule it out. If that that happens... And watch us still, like, go back to the Mueller report. (laughs) Yeah, it's like... Uh, yeah, but yo, what are those odds for 2020, though, dog? Like, come on. Exactly. <laughs> I'm voting for Kodos. I just... We just... The Canadian government just had a, a, an election yesterday. Yeah, I heard uh, that you reelected the blackface guy who... Uh, I did, yeah, apparently. I think... I'm an expat, though, so I've washed my hands clean of it. Yeah. And I, I don't even know his UFO position, so I can't really comment on uh, anything that I care about in terms of Canadian politics. Yeah. Let's talk about the ATMs. Because this was a this is a weird one. I was like, can I get that? Just can I, I maybe I get think that? I should and, just try it, just yeah. like as a stunt, you know? Yeah, just a stunt. I, I just want to see if it works. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there has been a spate of jackpotting across Germany and apparently the United States as well, uh, and that is where a hacker plugs in a USB port, uh, a USB stick into an ATM and makes it spit out all of its money. <laughs> and takes it. That and shit is tight. buck wild. It's incredible. So they use this. Uh, they use this malware called Cutlet Maker, which has been. Uh, it's been demoed at like Black Hat and all these other uh, hacker conferences. But as far as we know, it hasn't really been used out in the wild very much until we just learned that it's been used in Germany, like kind of a lot of times, like a few dozen times at least, to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars. Uh, and that must be such a weird thing to see. Like, if I saw an ATM just like... Yeah, so I was thinking about you know this because I mean? you imagine it just, like, spits it out, like, like makes it rain, like, goes all over the floor and, and shit. Like, I don't think that's what happens, though. It probably just spits it out. You know how, like, the ATM clamps down to all that money? Yeah. Like, it would probably do that, right? 
I haven't. There's not yeah, video like of it in action. But if it keeps so. going, it's gonna like it's gonna overflow. That's true. So that's the thing is like I just don't know how it works. Like we don't have video of it happening. We we talk to uh, sort of like bank security and law enforcement officials who confirm that this is happening, but we don't have video of it. So it's like it mm-hmm. must be spraying everywhere, right? I, like. <sighs> I guess I, I also want it to. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Can I, I just so have this? Can yeah, I just have yeah, it? Yeah, I just like, I want it to. So it's, I don't know if that means necessarily that it is. Yeah. But yeah. but I would imagine, I mean, like, I don't know. I've gotten like enough bills out before for like weird stuff, like rent, like cash. And it's like, it gets pretty like full. Yeah. Like New York City rent. <laughs> Just, just yeah, and Let's uh, not talk about that. I think you should do a full episode of Cyber on this at some point. But uh, we dropped another huge story this week, just like mere moments ago. Uh, Joseph wrote about a company called MPC, which is run by the Scottish mob. Uh, Scottish mob, yeah. So it's basically what does like, that even mean? <laughs> so I think we've talked about encrypted phones before, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so these are phones used by drug dealers and cartels, etc. etc. Uh, they're often like modified versions of Android ha- handsets or Blackberries that have had usually Blackberries quite yeah. often. So this company MPC was using Android phones, and uh, this gang called the Brothers, or well, there's these two brothers who are called the Brothers that run this gang, this Scottish gang. Uh, they like on the side were like, "Hey, let's start an encrypted phone company." So they did, and they called it MPC, and they just like ran it as like a normal phone company selling, not normal, but like a normal encrypted phone company selling it to criminals and stuff. And we were actually able to tie it to a specific murder. So it was a specific Whoa. murder of a, yeah, of a... Okay, let's let's save this one. Yeah, so, let's save okay, it. We'll, right. we'll, yeah. we'll tease it for the listeners right now. That's it. But... Yeah, it'll come up in, a, in an upcoming episode of Cyber. Okay, so roundup over. Yeah, that was a good one. Lots of thoughts going on. Bye. Goodbye. This week's episode was recorded and edited by Andrew Bursick, produced and hosted by me, Ben Maku, and you will be hearing my voice next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.